Hi, my name is Bill Binch, Operating Partner at Battery Ventures. Thanks for tuning in to Soundbites, the podcast series that explores best practices in sales, marketing, and go-to-market for B2B SaaS companies. You're about to listen to one of our original episodes that ran in a live webinar format. Since this episode aired, we've pivoted to a podcast format so you can get more of the great Soundbites content you love in an asynchronous format. But the classics are worth a listen to, so enjoy. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are at, and welcome to what is our fifth Soundbites webinar. My name is Bill Bench. I'm an operating partner here at Battery Ventures, and I'll be one of the co-hosts today. Let me introduce my co-host, uh, Battery General Partner, 23-year veteran of the firm, Neeraj Agrawal. Welcome, Neeraj. Thank you, Bill. Good, uh, good to have you riding uh, uh, along with me once again. Appreciate um, it. And then let's go to our uh, our star-studded headliner of the show, Michelle Benfer. Michelle, good afternoon, and welcome to Soundbites. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great to have you. Uh, so let me give a quick background, to everybody, on Michelle. So Michelle is the senior vice president of sales at HubSpot, where she's been there for uh, over five years. Prior to that was the global head of sales for LogMeIn, where she spent uh, almost five years as well. She is a Bostonian through and through. She's a Boston College grad. Uh, she is a sales pro on hiring, coaching, measuring, mentoring, all the things that sales leaders do. Um, and she's also very well-versed in friction-free selling, velocity selling, big deal selling. So we have a a real um, master of all of the different arts of selling with us today. So Michelle, excited to have you. And um, I also just quickly learned that uh, the location of where you at has some interesting background. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, sharing before we hopped on here, I'm in a, a rental property because my house is getting renovated and it happens to be the home of Catherine Lee Bates, who was a Wellesley professor and she wrote America the Beautiful and this room that I'm sitting in right now um, was her writing studio and as I mentioned it is beautiful uh, because we have the Celtics in the playoffs the Bruins the Red Sox are playing this weekend and we have the Boston Marathon on Monday so uh, temperature is nice it's gorgeous here in the Boston area so you can't ask for much more. Boston strong baby Celtics and Bruins. <laughs> Patriots Day. It couldn't, couldn't be a more apt uh, time to be in the room where uh, America the Beautiful was written. So that's great. That's right. That's right. Well, good. Well, um, let's dive into our content, Michelle. Um, so let's start off with a topic around the future of sales. You have 750 sales professionals reporting into you. So you've clearly formed some ideas about the future of sales, especially what the rep of the future looks like. So as someone who's done PLG, you've done velocity sales, and you've certainly done sales at scale, love to get your view out the windshield. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we've all been kicking around for years, AIML, and trying to figure out how that's going to impact, you know, the sales motion in the future. And, you know, we're, we're knocking at the door right now, which is, which is pretty exciting, but over the last few years, we have no meeting, no internal meeting Fridays here at HubSpot. And what I try to do um, is take meetings with a lot of startups that have interesting technology 
that is there to support uh, the seller to be more productive. And, you know, a lot of them are in their infancy, but there are these little nuggets of, I think, where technology is going to go in order to support the seller in the future. There's one company that we had partnered with. Um, what I thought was really interesting was if you take a standard rep in a sales process, and me as a sales leader, what I'm looking at you know, do we have enough deals in the pipeline? Are we creating deals every day and enough of them? Are we holding enough demos? Does a rep, you know, have a mutual action plan in place during the sales process? How many decision makers do we have in the deal? The lens that we're looking at to analyze deal health is based on rep behavior. And what I think is going to happen in the future is I think we're going to start analyzing buyer behavior and buyer engagement within the sales process. And, you know, I don't know if, if you guys, you know, have peeked into to Gong, if you use Gong, a lot of tools are like this, but I kind of had a bit of this aha moment. I used to do this manually, but when you start to see the email volley and the velocity right before the end of a sale, I can look at the back and forth of emails and the proximity to a close date and tell you just by looking at that, whether or not the deal is going to be closing in the next week and the next two weeks, there's a lag time in that volley back and forth from the buyer to the seller. It's just not happening. And so I really think that the seller of the future is going to be measured and the deal pipeline health is going to be measured by what is the buyer doing in the sales process? Are they opening emails? Are they attending Zooms? Are they speaking on the Zoom? What is their title? What weight does that title have in the sales process based on you need a VP in order to close a deal? You need a C-level at this stage or the likelihood to close is significantly diminished. So I think we're going to see it really kind of flip on its head and we're going to stop analyzing rep actions and start analyzing buyer engagement actions within the sales process. Um, I, I really resonate with that because long ago with my experience in marketing automation, I learned through that process that the buyer is in control. So I think we've all thought about that for the last 12, 15 years or so. Um, but it's interesting to hear somebody with a model like yours, where you do obviously track all the activities that sales professionals do, but you're looking at the shift of that to being what are the signals, the intents that you see from your buyers go through. I think I'm hearing yeah. that right. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of companies, us included here at HubSpot, you know, we do that in our lead scoring and lead propensity. You know, what, what pages did they, did they check out on the website? How often have they checked it out? How many people at the company have been going to your website? Were they on the pricing page? What content are they download, downloading? So we do that from a lead propensity scoring, but we're not doing that in the, the deal process. And so I think we're going to really start to see that and use, you know, that intelligence, that deal intelligence and the propensity to close to help inform the rep on the next best step. So one of the things we're building out as a part of our three-year strategy is a guided selling um, model so that the rep shows up and we're telling them, you don't have a VP on the deal. You need to have at least two VPs at this stage if you're selling the sales product and the marketing product. Um, and you haven't held a technical demo yet. Next best step is, you know, get this demo on the on the books and make sure that we have one of these level of decision makers on there. So helping inform the rep of that next best step.
it's like it's like the recipe or the scorecard to winning the deal. What I what I like about that as a former operator is I think about the frontline manager having a one-on-one with their sales rep. And instead of just talking about the status of the deal and it being this very subjective discussion, it now becomes this objective discussion that based on the data that we've collected, you should be at this stage of activity or buyer intent in the deal cycle. So which of these things that we haven't done can we do in the next seven days? So that by the time they come back to your one-on-one the following Wednesday, they can say, boss, I've done these things. Yes. Yep. And also that my, and my, my customer, my prospect has done these things. These are the things they've done. Like my job is to get them engaged in content and in the, in the deal process. And I've initiated this kind of behavior on the, on the prospect side. God, that's great. Um, Bill, I was I was wondering how long it would take for you and Michelle to get into the Marketo HubSpot arm wrestle. I was I was kind of waiting for that. You, you squeezed that in pretty quickly. I was impressed. Though. Uh, look, I'm I'm proud of <laughs> what we accomplished at Marketo, but I'll tell you, I think HubSpot is a great product, especially for earlier stage startups. I think that it's a great place to start and continue your journey. So yep. uh, I I think there's a, a place for both. And and listen, if it wasn't for Marketo, we wouldn't win as many deals as we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> excellent, nothing, excellent nothing nothing but respect for marketo it's uh yeah. it's a great tool and and still very much needed by a lot of our um a lot of our customers who might use us for some of our other tools no i don't know if now would be a good time to ask about the upside down framework on the quota model i think it might tie into what just michelle just talked about uh but i i know i don't know if you want to go there or somewhere else because that might be an interesting uh uh segue yeah, I think I think Michelle, there's a, a couple of really interesting things that that you're doing at at HubSpot. Clearly, there's the uh, upside down um, way that you look at quota. I think that would be a great thing to share with our audience. And then uh, as a follow up after that, it's a different subject. Um, we've always seen Darmesh, one of your co-founders, um, out on LinkedIn talking about ChatGPT. Um, it'd be great to hear some of your thoughts on how you think that's also affecting the future of sales, especially at HubSpot. Yeah, sure. Um... So the upside down quota model, um, this is one that whenever, I, whenever I've shared this, whether it's a networking groups or even to some of the new executives that we bring on board is uh, not one that I've heard of at other companies. It might, it might exist out there, but quite some time ago, we built a quota model where when the reps hit 100% of their number, the company, give or take, it depends on the year, we basically hit 90% of the company number. So in order for me to hit the Michelle number and or, um, you know, and the company, we need our reps to overachieve. And most companies have their rep model so that when the reps are hitting 80% in aggregate, then the company's hitting 100%. When the reps are hitting 80%, the managers are hitting 90%. But there's that buffer in there, right, in order to make sure that there is plenty of room for margin of error. We do the opposite. So most of my months are more of a white knuckle ride for me than they are for the reps, I would say. Um, but that then translates to higher retention of our salespeople. We know that our most tenured reps are the ones who perform the best. So when people are actually hitting their full OTE and they can overachieve and they're hitting accelerators and they're making president's club, uh, which still it's a stretch to get to those, those next level. We have a president's club, we have a founder's club. Um, but it helps with that rep retention. And so when you take a look at the holistic investment into onboarding and enablement and interviewing and recruiting, 
you know, being able to retain your people and have them stick around with you for quite some time and overachieve and make more than they signed up for is, um, it ends up being a win-win for HubSpot and for them. So, Michelle, can I just go double click on those? I, I find that super interesting. This is a topic I, I talk about at board meetings and just making sure our reps are feeling like they can make money. You know, like we all kind of essentially work for them, right, effectively. And so does that mean that you have very little over-assignment effectively built into the system and your your reps have a lower, lower quota, but much more achievable and they get into the accelerators faster? So instead of putting out some higher higher um, quota number, you bring it down lower, but you know that some are going to go above that and that's how the whole company will make it. Can you just comment on how, how the, the reps numbers adds up to your number? Yeah. Um, so I would say it's not that we make their quota more achievable. We've, we're still stretching their quota quite a bit year over year. My reps would certainly tell you that. We try to make it reasonable though, with some real, you know, numbers and data behind it and walk them through how we think they can make it and why, and our demand plan ties into all of that. It, I would say they stretch my plan more. So that quota coverage, you know, there's seasonality. So for example, this month right now, I was supposed to have no quota coverage for, for my team based on the amount of headcount movement and tenure that we have, I actually have quota coverage, but based on seasonality, it shifts, right? Some months you have more coverage than others. Some you're behind in coverage. If you take it in aggregate on the year, typically I do not have about 10% coverage on to hit my number. So for me to hit reps need to get to that 110%. It's not to make it easier to hit accelerators. It is for me, the leader to have skin in the game, to get my people to overperform. So the leadership team, it is really on us to have our reps win first and the company win second. And this is like, it is really difficult for companies to understand that and have the confidence in that. Uh, but it's worked for us. And we really have strong, strong, you know, tenure of our reps who have been at the company for a very long time. And like most companies, you know, your top reps are bringing in the highest percent of revenue for, for the business. Yeah, that's great. I mean, what I also like about that, sometimes a company is celebrating, but like a large number of reps aren't. And it seems like in your system, that's not going to happen. You know, the, the, you're celebrating when the reps are celebrating, which is really nice. Like exactly. That. Can you guys hear? Of course, the landscapers just showed up when I hopped on this call. Can you hear it or no? No. No. Okay. No, we All right. Good. Good. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, Looks like you were trying to chime in. No, I, you know, look, there's a reason I already don't have a lot of hair, but Michelle, I'm just trying to step into your world of, like you said, the white knuckle finishes to quarters. I, I, you know, for everybody that's attending today, I, Nears and I love having leaders like you, Michelle, that have, I think, innovative ideas that are edgy uh, around there. And um, I'm just trying to picture myself being in a boardroom or or with some companies trying to explain this model and having them scratch their heads. But I I, I love the idea. I'll be curious to see what questions pop up in the uh, the chat box around that one. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Um, a, a, a different topic, but also again related to to um, HubSpot. As I mentioned, your co-founder Dharma Shaw. Um, has been posting quite a bit about the impacts of GPT-4 and then like the prior GPT-3, three and a half, and the whole process there. You mentioned it in your opening statements about the effect of AI and ML coming into um, to sales. So it'd be great to hear from you how, how HubSpot's thinking about that, incorporating that into your model for the future. 
Yeah. I mean, we're at the early, early days, you know, of even just kind of wrapping our heads around how this is going to change our ability to uh, increase sales productivity. We're on a multi, multi-year journey, I think, of kind of re-engineering our, not only tech stack, but just basically our sales engine and infrastructure to build for the rep of tomorrow and where we're going and chat GPT kind of, you know, plays into that. The, the long term is how do we help reps get as productive as possible, reduce the cognitive overhead and administrative burden that they have every day, and enable them with tools that allow them to do their jobs faster um, and smarter without having to work harder. You know, I think everyone really needs um, that work-life balance. So when you see the ability, there was one I was um, reading earlier today, but for a rep to say, you know, please send a prospect um, a cold email about our marketing product um, with, you know, for healthcare uh, with best cold email prospecting strategies, you know, and it's going to pull in, um, you know, keep it short, keep it, make it personalized, pull in something from their LinkedIn. And we're not we're not there right now, but when I see what it takes for one of our reps to research a prospect as an individual, research a company, you know, read their most recent earnings report, and you go through the research in order for them to craft their story, if you have the ability to get that research pulled in for you, and then to be able to craft best in practice cold emails or responses or content that resonates the speed to which a, a rep can get to a prospect and convert a deal, I think is going to make us less reliant on headcount and more reliant on just experts at deal management and deal engagement. Um, and so I think there's, I think it's going to be really cool to see the impact this is going to have. I think that's cool too. That's great. Um, thanks for sharing with that. Uh, it seems to be the, uh, the question du jour of the moment. Um, let's shift to another topic that I know you're very well versed in of sales metrics. Um, so someone like yourself, who's led PLG business in the past, you've led velocity business. We tend to define and then depend on metrics that we use, um, cause they're important to our business. You internally have a concept that you shared with me previously called create process and close. I think it was a, a really well-defined model that your team had, had helped craft um, can you break this down for us and share a little bit about that? Because I think the, the audience here will find this really interesting. Yeah. So um, I credit goes to this brilliant woman who uh, works on my team, Ilana Lilazari. And what she was doing in coaching her, uh, her rep, she's a director and overseeing her managers. She really wanted to understand, okay, if we're going to take a look at all the reps under all of her managers, where do we have skill gaps? And so we broke it down into, you know, there are skills you need under create, you know, creating deals, understanding what a good prospect is. We call them good fits, managing your capacity. So, if, you know, your, your book of business, your prospect accounts, um, how strong is your, you know, written messaging on email as well as LinkedIn, you know, your target account outreach. So we really went through and kind of um, itemize, what are all the things that a rep needs to be good at when you are trying to create your pipeline? Then we move into the progress stage. And that goes into, you know, what is your discovery 
your discovery skills and, you know, how's your discovery call? How are you at storytelling? You know, we just know that storytelling, you know, drives higher engagement. Um, are you organized for your calls? Are you preparing well enough? Did you set a strong agenda? Are you managing the meeting well? Um, and then as you go through, are you multi-threading the deal? You know, do you have a mutual action plan in place? So all of these kind of subtopics under create, progress, and then we get into close, which includes, do you have a strong closing plan? Do you understand what the procurement, you know, buying process is? Um, do you have upfront contracts to what, you know, your prospects agreeing to? So we go through all of these and we're analyzing the reps, you know, do they have the skill in this area or not? And if they don't have the skill, do they have the will to learn it? We kind of use that situational, you know, leadership four box um, in order to coach accordingly. But it was a really good way to isolate these kind of micro moments in these three buckets of the sales process, create, creating the deal, progressing a deal and closing a deal. And for our directors to be able to coach their managers on how do you coach the rep to upskill in this one area better? Yeah, I really, I really like that. I think, and and if I recall correctly, you apply a metric based to that, like a one to five rating or something. So that is when we take a look at our deals and whether or not our deals are progressing, we have a multi-point variable system and, you know, the variables, for example, you know, zero is the deal is, is hot and it's moving along. We really think this is going to close and all the indications of what's happening in the deal are telling us it's going to close and soon. You know, and then it goes down to five, five being, you know, there's not a lot of activity here. And it's measuring things like when was the last time the client engaged with us? When was the last time we engaged with them? When was the last meeting that we had with them? Do we have a meeting set within the next two weeks? So it's really kind of taking the engagement, both from the rep as well as the uh, prospect and giving a score. And it's really time-based. Like, as I mentioned earlier, is this active right now? And it gives us a deal health score. So right now for April, 82% of my pipeline I know is in the zero or the one bucket, which is great. But when we want to progress more, all right, what's happening in, you know, bucket two and how do we move those through? Um, and then three, four, five, should we really kick those over to the next month? And, and then you can also take a look at a rep. You know, you don't have any mature deals. You're telling me you have a, you're going to hit your number this month. Nothing in your deal health or deal score is telling me that that's going to happen. You know, then you can isolate what you need to coach them on or how to manage the forecast appropriately. Could you talk a little bit about the multi-threaded aspect? It's one of the things that I noticed both on the sales side and, and to some degree post-sale with CSMs often get stuck with one person. Is there anything that you have found uh, to be helpful to train reps in that area to, to make sure that they go a little wider or higher, whatever they need to do to be not to not end up being multi to become multi-threaded? Yeah, I think um, as we've progressed through our product suite, we've had to do this with different types of personas, different types of buyers. And then as we go up the decision-making track and so, you know, HubSpot has been an SMB, you know, business for, that was really kind of our uh, genesis and we've moved up market, you know, since then. And we used to speak directly to the decision-maker at smaller companies because they just happen to be smaller companies. And so as we've strengthened some of our muscles, They've had to be, how do you go wider and how do you go up? Um, and so, so some of that is, you know, understanding what matters to the persona. So if we're looking at, for example, a marketing hub and a CRM, you know, with our sales hub, 
what matters to the marketer might be the full customer journey analytics and the attribution and the lead scoring. What matters to the sales leader is rep productivity and the reporting. It's tying the story in for both of them and creating, understanding what their individual needs are and how HubSpot and all the products together help both of them as a team in presenting some of those business use cases. Um, and then, you know, getting to the person is a lot of the sales techniques that depending on the methodology that you're that you're using within your organization. But if it's quid pro quo, it's holding the deal back, not allowing it to progress, not go moving to demo unless we have a more senior person on the call um, is some of the ways that we do that. The last one is also, you know, getting their their uh, cell phone number being able to text them, building those relationships one-on-one -on -one, and just keeping a real pulse on consistent communication has been really helpful. That's great. Hey, one question just to um, add about, ask about the multiple personas. Uh, a, a lot of companies have a hard time managing multiple personas and uh, HubSpot's not only built great product, but is able to do that. Is it is the same individual sales rep talking to these multiple personas because of the size of the company typically, or is it you have a separate sales hub, sales team, or specialists that come in? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, we have, we have, it's, it's, it's interesting. We have one rep who, um, they do an element of prospecting. We do have BDRs who support some, um, some, some of our teams, but the reps are still prospecting. They're still bringing in new business. They're managing their book of business for expansion, upsell, cross-sell. And um, they don't do renewals, but they're also selling every product, every product that we have, which at our scale, you don't see that at some point you move to some form of specialization, whether it's from a vertical perspective and or product line perspective. We have done some overlays who are experts at product, but it's more from a technical perspective, less on the persona lens. Um, but we it's constant enablement. You got to really get inside and understand what is the pulse of the leader today. And I'll tell you what mattered to a SaaS sales leader 18 months ago is different than what matters to them today because the scrutiny right now in the buying process and their CFO coming in, you know, the total cost of ownership conversation and the ROI conversation is trumping in a lot of ways the conversation about rep productivity or tech enhancement. So you know, we are constantly enabling our team on how to understand that buyer more, how to go deeper um, and sharing back those use cases and stories of what matters to them. As, as our platform has grown, it's also become a much more technical sale. Um, so even though there's a business use case for it, clearly, um, you know, the technical buyer has really come to the forefront as more pronounced than we've had in years past. It, was there an evolution of the sales rep profile over the last five years to be able to do? Because what you described is, is you know, being enabled across all these products is not, it's, it's not easy. Um, have you, has the profile changed uh, significantly or have you been able to enable folks same profiles before with, with all of us? Yeah, I, I think our profile is, it's constantly evolving, uh, especially as we've evolved. You know, we've become a more diverse uh, organization. Part of driving some of that diversity is also making sure that you're getting people from different backgrounds and environment. So I'd say the two areas that we see from a rep profile uh, perspective, I'd say two to three, but um, that we really double down on. One is business acumen. 
Like, do you have the, the ability to understand, you know, what is happening at a company's business? Because we're selling a go-to-market suite of products. Can you understand what, you know, go-to-market motion is and why that matters to a business and who these players are and what would resonate with them? So that's, that's one piece. The other one that has come to the forefront more than anything else is coachability. You know, we, we have a real culture of humility and you can't be coached if you're not humble. Um, and so we really, you know, you, I walked you through the create progress close. It's, you know, I'm going to say, Bill, um, listen, your storytelling just needs to get better. You know, we're going to work on it. I need to see a few role plays and, you know, really, and you got to be willing to practice. So coachability is the other one. Um, and then the last one's resiliency. So just, you know, we really try to index on where have some of our, um, you know, candidates had to overcome adversity uh, personally, professionally, in their student life. Um, and if they can really talk about that adversity and how they overcame it helps us understand their ability to be resilient. That's awesome. I, I could keep going on this topic with you, Michelle. This is great, but I want to give, give it back to Bill. I know he was got a couple more topics he wants to hit on. No, just one quick question, and then we will go to the audience questions. Michelle, we had 17 get pre-submitted. looks like we have four or five up on the board right now. But um, closing out on that topic, uh, have you looked at the, ten the AE tenure versus the product mix and any correlation that you see there inside of your team? Yeah, that one's actually been really interesting. So... Um... I would say some of our reps who have been the most tenured have leaned on our more traditional product set. Um, you know, they, they it, it, selling what they know and that's evolved over time. But we saw, for example, when I started HubSpot five years ago, we had really moved into this freemium PLG motion that we hadn't had previously. That was, that was new having a free CRM and the, the tenured, the tenured reps hated it what, you know, what's in it for me? Why would I want a free user and to spend my time calling free users? You know, like I want, I want hot leads. And um, it was a real spicy topic. And, um, and eventually, you know, those free users became super users who became customers and maybe they started with their starter product and, but now they're at an organization and they're running marketing and they've adopted the full product suite. And so um, I would say it's it, not only have some of our tenured reps tended to lean into what they knew. Um, we've also seen in new regions like Latin America, uh, they leaned into what they use. So we have in some regions, the reps who are using the CRM all day, every day, they sell, they can sell that first and foremost, because they know it inside and out they're using it. And so it has been it has been interesting to see kind of that dynamic and shift. I, I think this might be a topic for a future entire soundbite session, which is the situation where a company that's been selling product A announces their product B or a very similar and a similar analogy to that is a company that sold from a sales led motion introduces a product led or a friction free product. And the impact, like you said, like, why are we giving something away for free that I used to go sell? So I think it's a fascinating topic to, um, to go further in. But thanks for sharing that with us. Michelle, let's, let's make a switch here to some of the questions. Like I said, we have a bunch rolling in here. So 
Um, I'll bounce between some of the pre-submitted questions and some of the live ones. Um, there's a live one here that I think is really, um, really quite topical right now. It said, hi, Michelle, thanks so much for your advice and input. In this economic climate, from a value perspective, are you seeing deals focused on revenue impact, cost savings, or some element of risk mitigation? Or is it simply reducing tech spend and consolidating vendors? How are your AEs how have your A's changed their talk track in this new world of selling? Yeah, awesome question. Um, I would actually say all of the above. Um, revenue impact is a huge one uh, and cost savings. So I think what a lot of companies, what we're seeing is a lot of companies taking full stock into what is the total cost of ownership. So for example, we have a large competitor that when you're buying a tool out of the box, um, you know, you have not just the software cost, you have the implementation cost, but then you also have to hire an administrative team in order to manage it full time. So when you really take a look at how much something costs, it's not just simply the price on the screen and, you know, on the pricing page, it is what is the ecosystem to support, you know, the tool. Um, and so, um, so we are seeing it from a, um, from a cost perspective, rep productivity is a big one. Um, but I would say the cost management is is definitely been coming to the forefront um, lately. And we are, you know, and then the second part of that question, you know, is it reducing tech spend and consolidating vendors? That has been the HubSpot value prop uh, for years and years and years. You know, we we do allow companies to have kind of a one-stop shop with a lot of elements of our of our platform. So the vendor consolidation has always been a big play for us. I think that's great. You know, one thing that I've been seeing across the battery portfolio and beyond is a lot of revenue leaders talking about that while they're out there trying to demonstrate what their their proven results are, proven outcomes are for their customers on the value side. They're also really zeroing in on what is the cost of do nothing or stay with your current uh, your current solution because you have to build that gap uh, between where the the buyer is currently at and what the the you know the visualized state of the future is the positive business outcome and so really getting grounded on what that negative consequence is of staying with where you're at is really critical to building that business case. Yep. And I would also add, you know, there's just so many sellers. These, I mean, we sell to to sellers and sales orgs. But when you have tools that just don't work and that are clunky, we do it. Uh, we actually have it open right now. We call it a systems usability survey. So we're constantly surveying our sales organization and asking, where do you have friction in your systems? How do we reduce that friction? What could give you more time back in your day? What would you do with that time? I think so many companies that are trying to get rep productivity right and just employee happiness and productivity and engagement is having the right tech stack to enable them to do their jobs is also coming on the forefront of why people are are consolidating technology and making sure they're doing best to breed this is great um let's go with a couple of other i'll go with a couple of the tactical ones here so i think you can knock through a few of these quickly one was uh, michelle what's your average quota to ote multiple with your reps um I, to be honest, I couldn't give you a one-stop shop answer. The reason for that is because um, we probably have 20 different segments, micro segments, and in each of those, we have different tiers of quotas as well as OTEs. So we have a programmatic uh, promotion path 
So an example of that is, Bill, you start, you know, you are level one in small business. You hit your number. You have strong retention metrics. You promote automatically to level two. You promote automatically to level three. And so we try to do a non-biased, purely mechanical metrics-based promo path. Because of that, the OTE multiple shifts, compensation shifts, you know, and then we also have equities that's been a part of our um, our rep um, compensation as well. So, sorry, the answer is it's, it's a little more complex for me to just give you a simple broad brushstroke. Makes sense. So segments, you could have geos, and then even within those, you could have different leveling of the type of AE. Correct. Yep. And, and you know, we, we do find that, you know, for example, right now, our small business organization, you know, the productivity per rep is off the charts, but they are still our they are our reps who are learning, whereas our, our corporate reps, we're still moving more up market. And so um, anyway, so yes, I, I don't have a, I don't have a quick and easy for you there. Well, here, here's a, a HubSpot related question, less about specific sales, but pre-pandemic HubSpot had a lot of great user groups around the country, it brought prospects and users together. It was a great way to professionally network and great from the sales side, uh, plus the speakers. Uh, will these user groups be restarted? soon. And there's a specific shout out to uh, regarding the triangle area. So I assume the RTP area. Okay. Um, I I haven't gotten an update on user groups. Um, I hope so. Um, we just, as of the last two weeks, lifted our own internal travel ban from a really like a budget perspective. You know, yep. we, we, are, we put our money towards our tech infrastructure in the last few years, as a lot of companies did with the digital transformation. So um, inbound um, continues year after year, which is our big conference that we have in September upcoming. Uh, this past year, we had Barack Obama speaking. We've had Oprah in the past. We've had Michelle Obama. Um, that still is our big annual conference that a lot of our users come to. So uh, we love user groups more local, but inbound will continue in Boston this upcoming September. All right. So uh, uh, crawl, walk, run, it sounds like back to the uh, to the active user groups. Um, yeah. I'm going to go to a pre-submitted question. There was a theme of questions that came in around um, NDR, NRR, gross retention, whatever you want to put it. But um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of them so you get the flavor. One was what creative best practices are organizations using to increase their GDR and NDR? Uh, another one along those lines was how has sales design comp plans to help accelerate account expansion? Sorry, the first one, GDR and NDR? Uh, net dollar retention and gross dollar retention. I think it, uh, okay. I think they're asking about how do you uh, how do you drive better uh, just gross retention and how do you drive better cross sell upsell? Got it. Uh you know, from a retention perspective, we tie it all back to, we, we have something called primary colors, which is what are the, uh, and we're talking about customer retention, right? Customer and dollar retention. Yeah. So we tie it back. We have, you know, kind of five key elements of our product um, that we really double down and making sure that we are making feature rich and that we also have our users going deep and in, in using those elements of the product. So when we onboard someone, we want to make sure that we're onboarding them and kind of locking them into our five primary colors. Like an example of one of those might be, you know, conversation, um, you know, chat bots, um, you know, using conversational intelligence. So, you know, messaging, um, our workflows, you know, uh, with our marketing automation 
So we make sure we kind of like set them up for success. And then we check in on the usage of our primary colors. And we know that if they're not using one of them, their likelihood to retain is significantly lower. And so we're constantly, you know, working with our customers to ensure they're getting the most out of the product. And we also know the elements of our product that make it stickiest where they're really getting the most value. So I would say that's where we spend a lot of our time. Um, and at times that also goes all the way back to the trial. When you get them in a trial during the sales process and some of those primary colors, the ones that really give them that aha moment and how they can run their go-to-market more effectively, um, those are the elements we kind of double down on from a product usage perspective on retention. Okay, that's that's great. I love the primary colors concept. Uh, I haven't heard it put that way. I've heard of aha moments, of eureka moments, but I think- yeah. Colors is an interesting way to uh, to think through that. Let me let me go with one more here before closing us out. Um, it's a bit of a softball, but I like it. It says HubSpot has a really terrific consultative sales process. Kudos and any tips to share to help transition sellers into consultants? Yes. Um, when I think about the way I led my sales work before I came to HubSpot. We did not keep the customer in mind. It was about how do you bring in the most revenue? How do you close the deal? And hard negotiating tactics. And I really am like embarrassed when I think about the kind of sales org I I led and, and the practices that we had, which were just kind of these hard hitting SaaS, you know, working with IT buyers and um and it's you know, HubSpot is really, it really is truly customer first. And so I think if you are trying to move from, um, if your question is, you know, moving from more of a uh, straight line point solution to a more consultative sale, I, I really think it starts with understanding your buyer and having empathy and understanding what jobs do they need to do in order to make their job better and how do you make them a hero? Um, and it's with that one individual and then it, you know, blossoms out to the department, the marketing department, the sales department. Um, and how do you just enable them to do their jobs better? Um, so a lot of it's question asking the, the tricky part, and we're always balancing this at HubSpot. One of the real tricky parts is how do you create a sense of urgency while being patient and respecting your buyer's timeline? That is like the constant dance we're doing, right? You're coming to the end of the quarter and I'm breathing down everyone's neck and saying, where's this deal? Is it coming in? And, you know, we're trying to run a respectful consultative process, but at the same time, we need to drive urgency and we need deals ourselves. And that begins with creating that trust. And I think that trust begins with respecting the customer and also managing a deal process really well. So, um, the last piece of that is just constantly enabling uh, business acumen training. Just understand what happens, you know, what happened. I just had a conversation with one of my directors today who, um, you know, was asking for tips, like how do we get to more decision makers? We just made a, a mega purchase uh, recently for our sales organization uh, from a, a software tool. And the head of sales never sat in you know, the um, never sat in the sales process. It was decided by a director who was in our enablement team. And so, but he did the internal selling. So we try to say, let's think about how this actually works here and have respect for what is happening at their organization and how do you get those champions to sell for you? 
I love it. I heard a lot of customer in that. So I think the mindset was um, uh, customer first, start with that and build around from there. Yeah. Well, this is great, Michelle. So before we let you go, Michelle, we have a tradition on the sound bites that for all of our speakers that come, you might have seen this if you've watched one in the past. We um, we always like to send you away with a, a parting gift, but we let you choose. You have a choice of if you'd like a set of Ray-Ban aviators or a set of Ray-Ban wayfarers. Now, just note, the whole team that puts this event on, we all vote, not knowing what you're going to choose, what we think you're going to choose. So just know you're going to disappoint somebody, but which set would you like? I'm not going with the aviators. Okay, not with the aviators. All right. We've got the the choice made team. What so. was that? What was the vote? Um, the vote was two aviators to one wayfarer. Oh, so. interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a long term wayfarer uh, wearer. So. And you broke she, my street. I, I was she's from Boston. She's got to pick wayfarer. It's a hometown team, you know. Come on. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, they're they're on their way to you, Michelle. I I want to thank you for coming on and joining. This has been. A great session. Uh, the name of the event here is Sound Bites, purposely because we love actionable takeaways. And I have a whole list of things that I've written down through this session. So I want to um, express our gratitude for you taking the time to share this with our, our audience today and spending some time together. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, great Michelle. Really Bye. appreciate it. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.